Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 78 of the Single Mother Survival Guide podcast. My name is Julia Husher and I am the host of this podcast and I'm absolutely delighted that you're here today joining me and listening to this episode with my guest who is a family lawyer and it's a Q&A of all your questions that you have sent in to me. So I'm really excited. And we actually did the first part of this episode last week. I had to separate these podcasts into two episodes because we actually did this podcast recording live on Facebook towards the end of last year. And there were some really great questions and Todd gave us such great answers to these and, you know, he didn't hold back at all. So it's really wonderful to have him back on the show. I will just briefly introduce him again. So Todd Street is an accredited specialist in family law and he's worked as a lawyer since early 2006. And he also works in the areas of wills and estate planning, probate and administration and conveyancing. But we are talking all about family law in this episode. And he's actually based in Thornton near Newcastle, but he's actually also available to work remotely. So if you're anywhere in Australia, don't hesitate to give Todd a call because he will be able to help you. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you haven't listened to episode 77, which is the first part of this sort of mini Q&A series with Todd Street, you might want to go back and listen to that first. And let's just get straight into this episode. So here we go. Okay, the next question is, how does one convince a judge that drug testing should be implemented? So I'm guessing this comes to something to do with child supervision or something like that. Well, yeah, it, it can be different issues and go to the need for supervision and the need to mitigate the risk of a person under the influence of illicit substances having the care of a child. So, yeah, it's relevant to that. and also um, be relevant to um, the environment in which um, kids are taken um, generally uh, and whether particular environments are appropriate. Um, look, it's it's really a matter of quality of evidence. And, and look, I generally say to people um, that the, the, the better evidence you can give about what your observations were, why you say this person's using drugs. So have you seen the person use? Um, has the person walked in basically off their, off their chops uh, and and face-planted at the front door when they've, they've, they've walked in the door? Have they been... Um, you know, sitting on a couch in another in, a, in another universe, basically. Have you seen a syringe in their arm? Have you seen them? You know, yeah. yeah. So, you know, what what what, ev- what evidence what evidence um, are you relying upon? And if you've where you've got that evidence, put it in your affidavit, um, and and put it before the judge. I think, particularly in interim proceedings, uh, courts tend to be fairly conservative and protective in relation to kids. So uh, I often hear um, them say, look, just uh, go and do a, for, a um, for drugs, go and do a supervised chain of custody urinalysis test or a hair follicle test, uh, or for alcohol, go and do a CDT test or something like that. Let's just yeah. get a, let's get, get some results and, uh, and see if it's an issue moving forward. And often what happens is that you get some 
you get some results back and they're let's say they're randomly requested and they show no result, no, no positive, and it's for something like cannabis which stays in your system for, you know, a pretty decent amount of time, then it kind of it goes some way to addressing the issue. And I think the court kind of says, all right, let's, let's deal with this issue now, get some evidence before the court about it and see if we need to do anything more about it. But you can also look at other stuff. I mean, sometimes police subpoenas are, are a rich source of uh, corroborative evidence about, you know, seeing um, seeing someone walking down the street with, um, you know, known drug area or sometimes they make observations about people being known drug users and that sort of stuff. That can all be helpful as well. So independent evidence is, is particularly good in the family court. Okay, cool. Thanks for that. Uh, the next question is, I have a question on trying to get a 60-40 care arrangement of my children. My ex is wanting 50-50 of our five-year-old who starts school next year and our eight-year-old. I, mm. of course, want to remain primary caregiver. Thank you. Yep. So when a court's deciding what sort of orders to make goes through a process, I talked a little bit earlier about equal shared parental responsibility. There's a presumption uh, that that order should be made subject to certain exceptions. If a court applies the presumption, uh, you then go and consider whether there should be orders for equal time. Uh, in deciding whether to do that, a court looks, broadly speaking, at two things. Firstly, they they ask, are these would it be in the best interests of these these children there to be an, uh, an equal time arrangement? So they look at things like what the developmental needs of the children are, what the relationship is between the children, both parents, um, any family violence issues, any risk issues, uh, views of the children. Although these these children are eight and five, so they're a little bit they're a little bit young for views. A, a whole series of factors which are set out in uh, section sixty double C of the Family Law Act. Uh, so that's the first thing the court looks at. Second thing the court looks at is, is it practical to do this? Is it reasonably practical to do this? So it says, how far apart do these, to the do, do the two households, um, how, how far apart are they? Yeah. So if you've got one parent living, if you've got, let's say, another one living in, in Sydney, it's not really going to be practical to have an equal time arrangement. A little no. bit far apart. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Whereas if you've got, if, if you've got, uh, two parents who are living five minutes away from each other, then it's probably more conducive to that. So then you look at um, how well the parties communicate. Now, the reality is that anyone who goes to court has got a little bit of a problem with communication. So the fact that you go to court and you have an argument doesn't mean that equal time's off the table. They look What the court tries to do with the assistance of family consultants who provide reports is, and, and others who provide reports is they try to assess what the likelihood is once these proceedings are, are done, what the likelihood is that these two people are going to be able to communicate with each other in a, 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 a effective business-like kind of way. Yeah. The third thing a court looks at then is it says, all right, we've gone through those first two steps. How is it going to work as a matter of practicality? Now, do we have one parent who's up, and, up at daybreak, got the kids up at 6 o'clock in the morning, uh, it's very strict, uh, and uh, and parents in that particular style. Then you've got another parent who's up at you know as late as they can get, um, and is really is is more laid back in terms of their parenting style. 
Um, how's that going to work in terms of the two households? You, you, the parenting style, do the parenting styles mix well enough to make shared care work? And that's that's an assessment which is also done as part of the the, the family consultant process too. Um, so that's that's a yeah. So all that sort of stuff is is the sort of thing you look at now. In terms of whether it's 50-50 or 60-40, uh, there'd be some, I think, of the particular family dynamics and, and seeing whether it's these arrangements are in the best interest of these particular kids and whether it's practical. That's yeah. probably the best way to answer that question. Yeah. On a positive, I think it's great that this particular father does want to be involved because there are a lot that sometimes don't seem to be um based on what I've seen. Yeah, so well, I think it's great. And also just yeah, my two parents. cents. Sorry? I'm interested in your two cents. I'm interested yes, in your two I was, cents. <laughs> I was just going to say my parents got divorced when I was eight and my parents always had 50-50 and I thought it was mm. great actually. Like and I, mm. I have a really equal relationship with both my parents now and, you know, it wasn't always ideal but I think, yeah, personally I didn't think it was fair like why should why should I spend more time with my mom or more time with my dad you know like they both lived nearby had a good relationship with both of them but my parents had a very good co-parenting relationship mm. generally so not always the case. And the reality is that the reality is that kids are the products of both their parents and often just substantially from both of their parents too in terms of their characteristics and it's important for kids to be able to identify as as they as kids are growing up and they're they're learning about themselves and, you know, where they fit in the world. It's, it's generally speaking a good thing for them to be able to look at both of their parents, spend time with both of their parents and be able to work out where they are by reference to what they see from their parents. Um, that's, that's yeah. in my, there's, there are a whole bunch of other reasons why um, particular arrangements not, might not be good for kids, but that's a reason why uh, that's, that's the way you, you look at shared care. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Next question is, how do you make the move between lawyers and not lose continuity in the matters? Are there disadvantages of a change in the middle of a matter or between interim orders and final orders? How do you ensure you pick right the second time? So I'm guessing this person hasn't had a very good experience to date with their lawyers. Sounds like, sounds like she uh, might be wanting to move. Um, yeah. <laughs> look, look. Um, there's there's always a little bit of a continuity issue, no matter how good the lawyer. And the reason for that is that whoever, if if you're a, if you're a, a family law client and you've been with a lawyer for a little while, that lawyer will hopefully uh, know your file. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> um, and so. If, when you go to a new lawyer, that new lawyer, however good they might be, is not going to have that re-accessed information so to date with your file. And it depends upon how hard, how, how hard, how far through a matter you are in terms of how much you've got to catch up on. And uh, there's, there, there are obviously some things where you know if, if stuff's happened at court, then it doesn't really that sort of stuff that happens at court doesn't always come across in file notes. So it's very to an extent, you're always chasing your tail. But the reason why people tend to move is is either one, um, they're not happy with their lawyer. Number two, their lawyer's not happy with them. 
Well, number three. Oh, really? It's just question. <laughs> Is that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, trust me. <laughs> yeah, trust me. Um, um, does happen from time to time. Um, so I think, uh, and so, and sometimes the relationship just gets. I mean, it's just like any sort of relationship. Um, sometimes you just get to a stage where the 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 lawyer's done all that they can do. The client has uh, listened all that they can listen and they're not listening to each other anymore. And uh, sometimes it's just, sometimes that just happens where you just got to, um, you, you need a new Very voice. Mm. Um, yeah. So look, in terms of the sorts of things that you, you look at when you're making the decision or if, if you're deciding whether to go is similar sort of stuff to what I talked about before in terms of uh, asking around see who the Law Society um, recommends through accreditation, uh, see a few people and take your time. Um, sometimes, what, what I will say is sometimes, uh, sometimes clients do get, as a lawyer starts to understand a matter more, a good lawyer starts to understand a matter more, they um, find things out that sometimes either the, the client didn't think was relevant or didn't particularly want their lawyer to know. Um, because sometimes what, what clients do is they they want the lawyer to go in there and, and and run the case as they would, but just in a in a more professional way. Uh, and sometimes what that means is, look, I've, I've had a number of cases where um, um, subpoenas have been issued and it shows this, you know, whole history that, I'd never been told um, told about, which then um, uh, kind of changes the advice that I. And uh, sometimes that comes as a shock to to clients when they've been hearing something from their lawyer, and they don't necessarily appreciate the importance of this new information. And all of a sudden, they're hearing a different story. And that's yeah. Look, sometimes, look, most of the time, clients do that because they just generally don't genuinely don't realise the importance of it. But sometimes it's a little bit more. Sus. Um, but look, at the end of the day, I think um, if if it's a situation where the question, person who's asking the question has lost confidence in their lawyer, uh, then they need, I, I would suggest that they'd need to consider fairly strongly um, making the jump. In terms of when you make the jump, I don't think it, I don't, I don't think it really, it's a huge deal. Um, but but it would it would take some time for that new lawyer to, to get up to speed. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, now, this one's kind of related. Um, about legal aid, which comes up a lot, but this person wants to know, is legal aid successful or is it second rate with outcomes? My parents have spent tens of thousands of dollars already to no avail. I'm guessing that's to help her. And I'm wondering if I can pick a lawyer who does legal aid and get a good outcome. Yeah. Look, um I don't think there's any particular correlation between quality of lawyer and whether they do legal aid. Um, I uh, some of the best, some of the lawyers I know who are the best lawyers that I work with are ones that either work for legal aid uh, or um, do legal aid work and or do legal aid work. Um, mm. There are there are good lawyers who there are good lawyers who do legal aid work. There are not so good lawyers who do legal aid work. There are good lawyers who do private work only, and there are not so good lawyers who do private work only. 
it's it's not it's 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 not as if I suppose the, New, the the legal aid New South Wales building has a gravity which att- attracts all the bad lawyers or anything like that. In fact, they tend to attract uh, um, some of the best ones in, in, in my experience. To be fair, the legal aid uh, legal aid uh, legal aid don't pay well in terms of the sorts of fees that lawyers get, uh, but uh, they do um, their, their standards for certainly lawyers who do private workers are not. Uh, you know, they're pretty high. Uh, so, um, and you need to be experienced to do it. You can't just be a, a lawyer just out of law school who doesn't, who, you know, doesn't know their left hand from their, lo- their right hand who then gets all the legal aid work. It doesn't work like that. Legal aid, uh, they they have uh, like a threshold level of competency that, that lawyers need to reach, which you don't need to reach. There's no, com- there's no comparable thing in terms of private work. Uh, you can basically be... You know, any 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 Joe and, and get private work, uh, so long yeah. as you can get clients through the door. Uh, but look, no, I, I um, I'm I'm very strongly of the view some of the some of the best lawyers that, that I've ever worked with, uh, and some of the some lawyers who have become very very good judges have come from legal aid. Wow. Um, so there's there's no so there's no uh, there's 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 no uh, there's no link. Between. The only thing I'd say in relation to legal aid is that you don't just put in your application and automatically get funding. Uh, legal aid has a uh, has some tests that they apply. Firstly, you've got to have your financial circumstances have got to be such that um, you qualify. So you've got to have a sufficiently limited amount of income and assets. Um, and also they have what's called a, a merit test. So if they're not satisfied that your case has got reasonable prospects of success, they won't fund you. Um, whereas, mm-hmm. if you, well, well, they just they just think, well, okay, because legal aids, there are no votes in legal aid, you see, you see, the same as there's no votes in the family court. Um, so the money doesn't tend to, to get um, to legal aid and it doesn't tend to get to the court from the government. So they've got fairly limited budgets and they've got to make the, the, their budgets work as best as they can, which means that they tend to have a, a higher threshold than perhaps a private litigant in terms of whether they should run a matter which, or fund Yeah, it makes sense. Would they tell you or would they just say, like, would they say we don't think that we can, that you have any? Well, so what, what, yes, yes, so what the process is, is there's, there's a, inter- so I've talked about two different tests. So the means test, the, the financial part, there's actually a calculator on the Legal Aid website that you can go to and it can give you an, an indication of whether you're likely to, to fall within their, their funding parameters. Now, it's not a guarantee, but it is an indication. So the website is just legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. Um, and just just look for, uh, it's called Legal Aid Means Indicator. Pretty sure that's calculator. What the calculator is called. Um, so you can you can go there and find out um, uh, for that part of the well that test. For the, the I mean the the merit test is uh, I think it depends sometimes on the grants officer you get in terms of whether they like the Sandy case. Um, but it's uh, it's um, it's more difficult. You, you'd need to get some advice I think about that to see what the experience of the the, the lawyer is or the experience of the legal aid lawyer in terms of whether you're likely to get funding. You don't pick your legal aid lawyer, do you? You just get allocated. Um, well, if you are, 
It depends. So you can do a legal aid application through a private lawyer. So let's say I do legal aid. So a client could come to me and say, I'm a legal aid client. I'd like you to do an application for me. Uh, I'd make the application through the, the, the legal aid web, basically the legal aid portal. And then legal aid after a period of time would assess the application and decide whether to fund um, uh, that person on a legally aided, yeah. legally aided basis. Um, you can also go to a legal aid office and they can make an application for you. Um, they would generally give you a list of practitioners, let's say three in your local area. So I suppose there's a little bit of an allocation there in the sense that you've, you're allocated three that you might pick one from, but you might also find another one. And there's no limitation on who you can have as your lawyer so long as they accept legal aid work. Interesting. All right, well, there you go. Definitely not second rate. Okay. No. How, this is the next question, how do you get a court to recognise DV and ongoing emotional abuse with young children and reduce access with an unstable parent if the system keeps asking us to make our own orders and is not properly hearing your case? Is it disadvantageous to get docs involved to reduce access to a parent who is not coping and causing harm to children? Okay, it sounds to me as though what's happening in this case is that there's an application before the court in relation to these children. Um, the, 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 the questioner is, is a party to that case. She's probably found herself in some um, busy, what are called duty lists. So um, court days on which a judge has 15, 20, 25, 30 matters to deal with on the one day. And in, in a circumstance like that, then judges don't have the, the time to spend an hour on each matter. It's just not enough hours in the day. So sometimes what will happen is um, lawyers will get up, will tell the judge, both lawyers, so long as they're both represented, will tell the judge, broadly speaking, what the matter's about um, and why they're uh, um, particular outcomes. Now, that depends, of course, on the quality of the lawyer in terms of um, how well they do that. Uh, but sometimes what will happen after that is that having introduced the matter uh, to the judge, the judge might then say, "Well, I'm thinking that maybe we should. Do, I, I'm thinking that maybe we should do this uh, or something like this today, uh, because I've got 15, 20, 25, 30 matters in the list, and I'm not going to be able to spend an hour on your matter. Uh, so you might want to go outside and have a conversation along these lines in terms of these sorts of arrangements. So it sounds to me as though what's happened." Sorry, isn't that what brings people to court in the first place? Like if they could work it out amongst their lawyers, then they wouldn't be there. Yeah, sometimes it's different in different parts of cases, but um, people are sometimes more motivated uh, to settle once they hear a judge say, you've got a good right. case or I think you've got a terrible case. Uh, so, um, well, no, they, they wouldn't usually say that specifically. They wouldn't say you've <laughs> no. got a terrible case or a good case. Um, but the idea is, look, at the end of the day, it's, it's just like I was saying in relation to um, funding for legal aid. Um, the courts, there's, there's this view that uh, it's better to spend money on various other things rather than putting some money into the court uh, to get matters through more, more quickly, but also to allow people to have more time in front of a judge to, if necessary, to, to deal with something. Um, so it's, it, it comes back to a funding thing. And I know that um, judges 
particularly the judges in Newcastle who until recently there were only two judges because one left, um, they were working really hard. And in fact, they had the, the two of them in the circuit court had double the, the, the load of the judges, let's say, in Sydney or Parramatta um, because of the fact that they were one down. So at the end of the day, sometimes sometimes we, we lose sight of this, but you know, judges are also human as well. They've got a capacity to do a certain amount of work each day. Mm. And sometimes because of the fact that there just isn't the funding there that there needs to be, um, then they don't get time to spend on matters like they would like to. And look, I, I know that it's it's something that vexes everyone involved in the court process because you like yeah. to be able to spend the time on each matter that it, that is deserved. But, and it's emotionally draining uh, also, for the people who are, who are like going, we're going to court today, yeah. it's a big day, you know, like there's months, years yeah. of build-up sometimes and then, yeah, it's so frustrating. Mm. Yeah, and it's it's to be frank, and I don't I don't want to minimise how it feels for litigants because I'm sure it feels absolutely terrible, and it's plus it's it's their life. Um, yeah, but it's it's a similar similar kind of thing for everyone involved in that process, whether it's a family consultant, whether it's a judge, whether it's a lawyer. We all feel the, the emotions involved. We 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 get how the clients feeling, uh, or the clients are feeling. Uh, we get the risk issues. We go home at night and we think to ourselves. Oh geez, um, I hope that child's all right, or I hope that those children are all right, or you know, we all think about that sort of stuff, and that, and that's that's um, one of the toughest part of the jobs, actually. You know, that's actually really nice to hear. Like, not that you feel like that, but like sometimes I think people have an experience with a lawyer where they really just feel like they just it's just another person, and they get really complacent, and they're not really they feel like their lawyer isn't actually going, this is this person's life, you know, in my hands. That's what it feels like, <laughs> you know, when you're there. Like, yeah. Well, I, th I think there's 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 a there's an amount of, there's a there's a degree of professional distance that you need to keep as, as a lawyer. I think if you, if you basically get down, you know, in there with the client and you're, you're too emotionally <laughs> involved in that, yeah, basically, then, then I think, you lose the you lose the capacity to do the job that your clients paying you that you, your clients paying yeah. you for, which is to provide advice which is objective as best as you can uh, and good. Because once you get emotions involved in that sort of stuff, it, it becomes really difficult. Um, but so, some lawyers, again, we're all human. We all um, do it in different ways, and some over. Um, distance themselves. Some lawyers will get down and dirty in the emotions with the client. Uh, what we aim to do, what a good lawyer aims to do is to be sympathetic and understanding of the emotions, but nevertheless give good advice. And it's something you learn over time. I mean, I remember when I, remember when I was a, a baby lawyer 12 years ago. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was very difficult at that stage to, to separate it, but you, you learn over time ways to do it. And uh, it's uh, uh, it's you know it's 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 you do it because you need to, but but you but but you but you do you do you do recognise the human aspect of it. Absolutely, yeah, you do. Sure. All right. Um, so, what about the docs thing, though? Did we oh, actually, there's just one. Th yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, I was about that. Look, in relation to yeah. docs, um, uh, docs have their own court, which is called the, in New South Wales, it's called the Children's Court, and that's where they do most of their work. They only get involved in family court where basically there's a, they're satisfied there's a risk of serious harm to the, to the kid. And, and a common example of that is where they don't think that the child will be safe in, in either household with either parent who's before the family court. Uh, they might then get involved in that case. But again, sometimes they don't. And look, I'm being on about this, but it, it comes back to a resource issue. And sometimes they just don't have the capacity to send a lawyer along. Uh, I know that one of the things that we do in, in the circuit court and the family court is that we often think that the department should be involved in matters, uh, but they don't come along for whatever reason. Uh, but it's those docs tend not to. It sounds as though this question um, is basically the, the questions asked on the basis they would they they'd like to get docs in there to basically participate and assess. reduce the dispute and all that yeah all, assess and all that sort of stuff which is that's really the court's role to an, to an extent um, and not really fax's role. I I I use the expression fax because docs is now called yeah, they're not docs anymore. services. Yeah. They're not, they're not docs anymore. Yeah. Um, there was another part to that question, which was how do you get the court to recognise the DV and abuse? And that comes back to the, the answer I gave before, which is basically get good evidence before the court. So who, you know, what are you relying upon? Who's who said what? Who did what? What did you see? What did I, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, that sort of direct evidence or um, independent evidence through subpoena material, um, police records, docs, uh, um, doctor's records, hospital records, those sorts of things. That's that's the way yeah. you get good information for work on. Okay. I've got one more question for you. This person, okay. it's not really a question. I guess it's more of a conversation point. But this person is wondering mm. about children not wanting to go with the other parent. She says that it breaks yep. my heart the few times per year that my kids, who are nine, seven, and five, see their father and they have to be physically extracted mm. from me. I get that kids have the right to be mm. loved by both parents, but how can this trauma be beneficial? It's exhausting. He doesn't call at prearranged times. He changes his weekends when he gets a better offer. He returns the children early, the usual, and there are no consent orders in place. Okay. Uh, well, there are or there aren't consent orders in place? There are. Sorry, did I say aren't? There are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it sounds to me as though there's been... See, consent orders can be made at different stages of proceedings. They can be made without court or they can be made um, mid-court or they can in indeed be made at end of court at times as well. Um, so the, the answer depends upon, to an extent, when it was, because if it was mid-court or if it was at end court, there'd be some sort of assessment which would have led, I presume, to the orders being made. So um, look, the thing about the thing about a situation like this is that kids will often present themselves in a particular way, another way to another parent. So particularly where it's a high-conflict situation where the kids know that their parents don't get along, um, in a case like that, you can have a... a the kids kicking and screaming, saying, I don't want to go, don't want to go, don't want to go. But as soon as they get in the car with the other parent, um, they're like, 
they're, they're, they're happy, they're engaging, all that sort of stuff, and it's almost like they, they sometimes what happens is kids um, behave in that way because they feel as though they, they should or they need to. That's, yeah. that's, one, that's one type of situation where that can occur. The other, situ- the other, broadly speaking, the other situation is where they actually do feel that way, um, uh, and that's quite a difficult situation. And that's why the that's why a court has found a consultant, social workers, psychologists, those sorts of people, do assessments because uh, lawyers, why they behave that way. Is, um, the assessment comes through um, people who've got training in psychology, social work, all that sort of stuff. Those are the people who have the expertise to say why kids behave in particular ways at particular times. Lawyers don't, judges don't. Um, so it's a matter of assessing why the kid's doing that. And as, as, I, as I've just said, there's, broadly speaking, two ends of the spectrum as to why that's occurring. Um, in terms of, because there are orders, uh, generally speaking, the expectation is that orders will be complied with. Uh, and if you uh, don't want to comply with the orders because you think you've got an excuse not to, then um, you should make an application to change the orders. Uh, there's one judge in particular in Newcastle who's very keen on um, on if you, if you want to change a place, you need to make an application rather than just saying, I'm not going to do this anymore and waiting for the other person to file. It's almost like taking things into your own hands. So um, the obligation of a person under the orders is to um, proactively comply with the orders. So if a kid's saying, I don't want to go, the obligation in that case is to say, You'll, you know, you'll have a great time. I'll see you when you come back. I love you very much. Have a great time and I'll see you then, that sort of thing. So sometimes it doesn't happen so much anymore, but when I first started, I tended to see people who'd uh, turn up with the kid. The kids say, I don't want to go. They'd say, he doesn't want to go, turn around, go home. That's not proactively encouraging. Um, Who would say that? Is the parent the who's turning them over? No, well, usually the parent is bringing them along to hand over the other parent. Yeah. Uh, you would see yeah. from time to time that they would turn up with the kid and it, 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 there'd be some sense that, that perhaps they've been in the kid's ear and, you know, you know, yeah. uh, you know, if you say no about going to see dads, we'll go to the, we'll go to the movies or we'll go to the beach or something like that. Those are the, those are the more <laughs> perverse furs. Uh, it happens God. or it happened. It <laughs> might still happen from time to time. Um, wow. But uh, those sorts of things do happen, and and that's why the court expects proactive encouragement because but kids are cheeky uh, as well. Because my brother and my brother and I used to do that to my parents. We'd be like, we'd have a fight with like our mom and go, Dad, you know, we want to come back, <laughs> and Dad would be like, No, suck it up, like <laughs> time with your mom, and we'd just get over it, you know. <laughs> Well, he sounds like he sounds like he, he took a very, very, very. But not all parents, unfortunately, do that all the time. Mm. Yeah. They what? Um, but uh, not all not all parents do that. Some parents grab onto that and say, "Yeah, okay, I'd like the sound of that." It's hard it because happen. it's emotional. I would find it hard. Like my daughter does. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's yeah, it's emotional. There's emotions involved. You don't want yeah. your kid to be upset, do you? Yeah, and, and look, I think, look, what I maybe, see, perhaps the way to deal with this, this particular child or these particular children, um, children, is to maybe get some um, get some advice from a, um, a psychologist or a um, counsellor or someone like that. But if they, if you do that, um, what the what the question should do is they shouldn't just run off and get 
an opinion themselves, they should include the other parent. Because the idea is, I think, that there's a, there's a benefit to the relationship uh, occurring between the children and both of their parents, the reasons we discussed before. Uh, and the best way to work out how to deal with the sorts of issues that the questioner identified is to have everyone involved so we've got both perspectives and then you go to the professional and the professional says, you know, how about you do this or how about you do that? How about we do a changeover at a different location? How about we have nominees do changeover for a while uh, so we don't have mum and dad together and the kids feeling as though they need to choose? So many different ways to skin the cat. But look, um, generally speaking, the court's attitude would be, let's see if we can work this out uh, in a way which maintains the relationship rather than, you know, maybe um, picking between a parent or another. It's probably complicated, isn't it? It's, emotions are running high. It's, it's tricky. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, it's the, it's the nature of it. And look, I, I've... I've given the answer on both ends of the spectrum. I've got absolutely no idea where the, the questioner is on that. And uh, it's not it's not a reflection reflection on the questioner, but um, it's it's on my experience, it's, it's a potential reason. And you know, it's, it comes back to what I said to you before about a, a good lawyer will talk about um, the stuff that's good, but also talk about the stuff that's bad. And, and I think it's important that you cover both bases. If you are concerned, like it sounds like these kids are quite traumatised. Let's say that mm. you are really worried and you need to be proactive. Is it right that if you're going to go and see, get your children, you know, assessed by a psychologist, that if you want to maybe mm. use that psychologist's opinion, if it does get to court, mm. you need to mm. go and see a particular type or get a letter from your lawyer? Look, I, I think you, you need to be careful in relation to that because I don't have the section in front of me, but there is a section of the Family Law Act which says that if you um, go and get uh, treatment for a child in relation to an allegation of abuse, uh, and abuse is more broadly defined now than it perhaps was historically, uh, then the evidence, apart from the evidence of the first consultation, I think it's the first consultation, you can't use the evidence as to the balance of the... the, the the consultations and I've seen that come up in practice so it really depends on why these kids are behaving there's no real indication as to why these kids are behaving the way that they are and there could be any number of reasons why they're distressed um, mm. but I look in the first instance what you do uh, if you given that there are orders in place you might need to get over that um, substantial and significant change threshold I would have thought the way to do it um, which is um, probably coming more from the perspective of the child, is to see if you can work it out together uh, so the child continues to have the relationship with the other parent but doesn't then, or the children don't present as distressed to changeover, which then causes, in this case, I think the mother to be, be worried about the child as well. I can certainly understand why the mother would be distressed to, about seeing the kids distressed, but there are a number of different ways to deal with that issue as well, particularly where orders have already been made. Yeah. All right. Um, I think we've ans asked, asked and answered all the questions and I mm -hmm. think we've covered a lot and I better let you go because it's past nine o'clock. But 
Thank you so much. I'm going to put your website in the show notes so everyone can find it. And for those watching now or later, I'm going to add it below in the comments as well. And guys, Todd is available to work remotely. So you don't have to be in Newcastle or Thornton to get access to this amazing lawyer. So Todd, thank you so, so much for coming onto the show again. Oh, the other thing I'm going to put in the show notes is I'm going to find that link to the victim's, um, no, what was it called? Legal aid, legal aid means calculator. Um, Yeah. So thank you for watching and listening, everyone. Um, It was great to have you. And Todd, thank you so much for coming onto the show. And I know that, you know, you're, you've just been amazing and you've helped not only the individuals who've asked the questions, but really great advice that will apply to so many people. So thank you so much for your time. Again, it was a pleasure to have you on the show again a second time. (laughs) It was was a pleasure to be here and thank you as well. Thank you. All right. Well, I will um, speak to you soon. Talk to you then. Well, wasn't that amazing? Todd is brilliant. Todd, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And Ladies, for all of you that sent in your questions, I hope you got a lot out of that. And even if you didn't send any questions, I hope that you did too, because I think a lot of the questions can really be applied to so many different people. And even if it's not relevant to you right now, it might be something that might come up for you in the future. So Todd, thanks again. And for those of you listening, thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed the second part of that. Q&A series with Todd Street. As he said, if you want to connect with him, he does work remotely. So for those of you in Australia, that is. So wherever you are, if you want to get in touch with him, his website is www.streetlawyer.com.au. And I will put that link in the show notes along with the link to his Facebook page and his email. So go and check it out. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at julia at singlemothersurvivalguide.com. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook, just at singlemothersurvivalguide, which is all one word. So come over and say hi. And if you want to book in a 30-minute complimentary clarity call, or if you want to do some one-on-one mentoring with me for one of my mentoring programs, then please pop over to my website, which is just www.singlemothersurvivalguide.com. I would love to chat with you. And on my website, you can also find out more about all the other podcast episodes and the guests that we've been so lucky to have on the show and read my blog. So yeah, feel free to pop on over. And if you have liked this podcast, I'd love for you to rate it in iTunes. The thing that is so good about rating podcasts or writing reviews is that it makes it easier for other people to find. So I really hope that new single parents do find it because I think from the feedback that I've had, it's really great to listen to, to not feel alone and to know that there is so many other single mums around and you're not the only one. I think it brings a lot of people a lot of comfort. 
So I would really appreciate that. It's very simple to do. You just go to your podcasts app if you have an iPhone and then you go to your shows if you have subscribed and you just find Single Mother Survival Guide. If you haven't subscribed, then you just search for it in the bottom right hand corner and you type Single Mother Survival Guide. And then either way, once you have got the show, then down at the bottom underneath the episodes, you can either just tap the stars to rate it. So easy. Or you can, underneath that, it says write a review and then you can write a review. It'll take 30 seconds and I really, really appreciate it. And I love reading your reviews as well. So thank you so much to everyone who has left one. Todd, thank you so much again. For everyone listening, thank you. I hope you have a wonderful week and I'll speak to you next week with another new and exciting episode. Okay, have a good week. Bye for now.